HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Meet in 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. This year, HRN is celebrating our 10th anniversary. We're taking time to reflect on the individuals, ideas, events, and eateries that have shaped a decade of food radio. To honor the achievements that have supported HRN's mission to make the world more equitable, sustainable, and delicious, we've created a Hall of Fame with new and inspiring inductees being added every month. You can learn more about the industry leaders who have helped shape HRN by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you an interview with one Hall of Fame standout featured on HRN's special series, Evolutionaries. Here, Jamie Oliver shares his journey from struggling student to celebrated chef whose work has made a lasting impact on school food policy. If you give a child uh, optimal nutrition at a school food level, um, it's it's more than just food. It's more than just energy. It, it, it affects grades. It, it it changes them. Heritage Radio Network proudly presents Evolutionaries, Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver is a chef, restaurateur, cookbook author, and TV host. In the late 90s, he was a young restaurant cook who happened into his own show, The Naked Chef, where he cooked to his credo, it's got to be simple, it's got to be tasty, it's got to be fun. As his career evolved, Jamie worked tirelessly to improve the nutritional quality of school foods in the UK and beyond, a mission that initially met mixed responses from the press and the public, but delivered extremely impactful success stories and lasting results. He has won several awards, including a Primetime Emmy Award for his show, Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution, as well as a TED Prize for his efforts to fight diet-related diseases. He also started the Jamie Oliver Foundation to improve the lives of people all over the world through food education. Jamie currently writes for publications in the UK and around the globe, including his own Jamie magazine. He also has the YouTube channels Jamie Oliver's Food Tube and Drinks Tube, plus five award-winning apps, and has published 18 best-selling cookbooks. Jamie Oliver is an internationally beloved food celebrity who has inspired millions of people to enjoy fresh, real food and home cooking. But Jamie's beginnings were humble. 
Well, listen, I was born into a pub and traditionally in the UK, pubs were drinking houses and a few nibbles on the side. It was never about serious food. So my dad, I didn't know until I'd left home, actually. I didn't know, but my dad was like one of the early pioneers of what we would call gastro pubs now. And, you know, he was a trained chef. He went to college, went to France, worked in London. And then when I was born, uh, he moved into the middle of nowhere and took an old pub on that stank and kind of cleaned it up and then started building a, a proper brigade of chefs and um, butchering on site uh, local produce um, kind of the stuff that Alice Waters has always talked about but dad just kind of done it he did it as a sort of default really um, fish days on Tuesdays and Thursday when we get like the fresh shipment in uh, making bread and pastries proper departments so um, that was my home that's all I knew and when I came down the stairs in the morning I didn't have like a front room or a TV it was like a wash up area then there was the prep kitchen and then there was a service kitchen so that, that was normal to me and of course you know my friends used to love kipping around and you know in those days we'd close at 2.30 and then open up again at 6 um, and it was exciting and I never got bored and you know I lived in the country it was very free very huckleberry thin you know very up trees building dams playing football sports kids everywhere it was safe so I, I, I looking back now as a dad you know I was blessed and and um you know mum and dad were definitely strong characters really hard workers like you know 24 7 so although mum and dad were always there they weren't really parenting they were just it was a family business they were just there and loving and kind but dad was strict tough like he he kind of thrived on me being a grafter you know he liked the idea of me feeling pain from being on my feet for 14 hours you know at the even at the age of 10 you know and doing like a proper double shift in a restaurant for pocket money which I started cooking in the kitchen about eight May, admittedly only doing like four or five hour shifts but then by the time I was like 12 it was a proper six hour shift double um one pound 20 an hour and <laughs> and uh, all the pain that I was in he thrived on he loved it he wanted to kind of create a <laughs> someone that could work hard and he, he succeeded it was the only thing I was good at and I just hadn't quite worked out that that's what life's all about right is finding the thing that you're good at and if you can find the thing that you're good at whatever it is it really truly doesn't matter um, then when people enjoy what you do uh, and love what you do whatever that may be um, then it makes you feel good and just like giving a dog a biscuit you know when when you kind of know where to go to get the pleasure from being good at something damn it you know you got something and for me as well I was so so rubbish at school like you know what we would call in the UK a special needs kid so I'd be plucked out of every class give or take and put in a special class you know with three kids and 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 I came out of school with nothing I got an A in art C in geology and everything else was pretty much ungraded so um I didn't have academia on my side but I did have the capacity to put a 14 hour day in at a young age. <laughs> and then even in those days, I realized that was a, an easy day. You know, the normal in the kitchen in, in, in the sort of the, the, the 90s was, was an 80 to 100 hour a week. Um, that was normal. That was standard. Um, so um, the benefits of that is you learn a lot quick. 
So your progression was mighty. Um, and the downside is you were completely knackered. Um, but I think when you're young, you can handle that stuff and, and it doesn't stop you partying. I think as a parent, you always go through life looking at your own children that you love. You know, ultimately, I just crave for my kids to be um, kind and, um, and find a passion. And, um, um, uh, and that's kind of it. That's all I want from my kids, really. But um, they go to a good school. I went to a kind of pretty rubbish school. You know, they get good. I mean, I have teachers that are fighting for their grades. I never felt that. So, and also they're working, they're doing their homework. I didn't. So in a weird way, like I'm, when I put my, when I impose myself on them, it's not really relevant because they're doing everything that I didn't do. So I, I do try, you know, I'm, I'm trying to kind of get them to contribute more to family life and teenagers is tough. <laughs> cool. No one warned me about teenagers. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, um, I, hope, I hope it all works out. I hope it all works, works out. They're definitely working at school. I'm not sure about home. <laughs> Jamie's first TV show, The Naked Chef, highlights a straightforward style of cooking and his laid back approach to cooking and entertaining. The Naked Chef was always sort of a big fluke, really. It was a bit of luck. It was never meant to be. My plan was to leave to London to work hard, really hard for five years, come back, somehow buy a pub, which was really doable in those days, um, and run my own place, you know, maybe 60 covers, um, and just have a lovely country inn, a little bit of back garden action, you know, uh, some good wines and beers, happy days. That was my plan, and I was always going to do that no matter what. Um, I went on the last day of college... um, I the, the the head lecturer sort of said, right, boys, where do you want to be in in, in a year's time? And they uh, all went round the kind of the, the room, sort of talking about Michelin style restaurants and posh hotels. And I was the only one that sort of said, I just want to make the best pasta in London. Um, and for whatever reason, they laughed. Everyone thought it was a stupid answer. Um, and my Italian mate Marco, on behalf of Italy, was quite offended. So he kind of gave me two names. One was his dad who was a very famous pasta maker in a really famous deli. But of course, they didn't have service. And I wanted service with customers. And the other one was a guy called Gennaro Contaldo. Um, And weirdly, I went home that night and my wife had ripped out a job for head pastry chef at the Neil Street restaurant where he cooked. So I wasn't officially a pastry chef, although I'd grown up cooking all the classics uh, in a pastry department. So, you know, and I'd I'd kind of done it in France a bit, but I'd never done anything in Italian. So basically I just read up and blagged it really completely. You know, I just kind of bullshitted and and, um, went and did like two, three day stage, got the job. And um, he was working for a guy called Antonio Carluccio, who was a very famous Italian chef also. So I kind of had a double whammy. And... um, that was amazing. That was about. They were famous for mushrooms. This was actually the most famous mushroom restaurant in London. Everyone went after the theatre. Gennaro foraged for loads of stuff from wild garlic, and, and he was like one of the only guys doing that kind of thing. And and although we did it historically in Britain, like no one in Britain at that time was foraging because we all thought that we were kind of better than that. And of course, it, there's nothing better than that. And so I did like a year and a half with Gennaro. Then I went to the River Cafe for three and a half years. Um, with Rose Gray and Ruth Rogers, and they were kind of killing it at the time. It was like, this was 25, oh, this is 20 years ago, and um, maybe a bit longer, actually. And these were two women that weren't trained, one American, one English, that had lived in Italy, 
um, and were amazing and uncompromising on quality of ingredients and hated chefy idiot sort of uh, egotistical you know arseholes they weren't having none of it um, and everyone was equal and everyone would fishmonger everyone would butcher from the pot washers or there was no positions no one was a pastry chef or this chef everyone did everything and they broke all the rules of the time and but most importantly they were brilliant I mean these girls were just jaw-droppingly talented you know up there with your Alice Waters and your Stephanie Alexanders of Australia and Patricia Wells and all these legendary female writers and cooks um, and they wrote two menus a day every day seven days a week so I remember being like six shifts in Saturday night 200 in and at that level of cooking 200 a lot and I remember wanting to cry because the stress our whole programming and training as chefs based on hundreds of years of history driven by the French and the French regimental kitchen was sort of weekly or quarterly or seasonal monthly menu. They were amazing and that, that's essentially where the Naked Chef came from because I worked a shift which I shouldn't have worked and the crew were there and that's where it all began. Maybe for many cooks and chefs, like when a microphone or a TV camera or, or a camera is thrust in your face, like which part of you do you want to show them? Do you know what I mean? And I think um, as much as everyone has vanity and ego, like I, I, the point of The Naked Chef was to democratize cooking. Um, right then, 20 years ago, and it's 20 years this year, um, men were not cooking in Britain. And it was the same in America and Australia and South Africa, New Zealand. And, and the list goes on and on and on. So I think like for me, the naked, because it was never supposed to happen. It was never in the plan. I was never supposed to work that night where the crew were that happened to put me on TV six months later. And then it went ballistic. And I was like, you know, and, and I look back now and I agree with the press. It's like, who's that baby with like hands of an old man, you know, because like, I could do very few things well at that age. But I was very good at roasting salads and pasta fresh pasta, all kinds of ragus and pasta. That was really all I was brilliant at, you know, or to a degree that was credible. Um, and if you look at Naked Chef 1 and 2, that's pretty much all I did. But also, luckily for me, that's what the world wanted. That's what the public wanted. They wanted dynamic food that was comfort food, party food, quick food, um, food that kind of like hit the spot. And um, so I kind of stuck to what I was good at. But also, I was so green in media, like, the greenest of green. I didn't understand um, the technology of making a program. I didn't really like it, which made me uh, fight the system. Um, so like, um, and you're surrounded by people that say they're really good technically, but that doesn't mean that they're craftsmen or crafts ladies in the context of the only, the only, th what I learned very quickly is the only thing that matters is not are you talented, not is the subject matter brilliant, but like, how are you going to, give this to people how are you going to how are you going to allow people to come with you on the journey how creatively are you going to make your net wide to make as many do you want it to be niche and there's nothing wrong with that or do you want it to be wide and I knew that I wanted to get as many people cooking as possible so the naked chef was me at my home not normal um cut to my music in my record collection not normal uh, not in chef whites uh, or sort of purveying like Michelin stars or big hats, not normal at the time. And we, I, I was like a hyperactive, slightly annoying 23-year-old whippersnapper um, that used to shoot around town on a scooter with his missus that he'd been with for, from the age of 18, like just cooking for parties. You know, why go out when you can have a party at home? And um, 
the camera had to keep up with me. So it kind of looked like, it wanted to be a factual entertainment program, but because I was so hyperactive, it had to be almost like a documentary. And of course that was contemporary and cool. And Britain at the time was interesting because it was cool Britannia, Kate Moss was smashing it, you know, Oasis and all those Britpop indie bands were killing it. Um, it was just a kind of, you know, we had all the artists sort of doing, Banksy was sort of just firing up on all cylinders and it was just a really interesting time in Britain good good to be 25 um, and I, I think what I had to develop and what I've since then further developed is it's, it's really tough when you care about food and when you love food from its deepest point to its thinnest point I, it's really hard it's really important that I have my heroes like Alice Waters right um, and organisations like Slow Food which I know you're part of um, but also, there's no such thing as perfect. And as I started to develop my platforms or my ability to express recipes or politics or food and even realize that they existed, um, I was broadcasting in like 120 countries really quick in an analog sense. We hadn't even gone digital. There was no Facebook or Twitter. You know, so I think like I, I had to really choose about... What's really important is it that I'm kind of uncompromising about the best of the best of the best that no one can get hold of? Or do we try and like bring back some stuff that people can dig that is available in the supermarkets? Maybe there's a kind of rhetoric or kind of energy that we can put out there that makes supermarkets try a bit harder and stock a few more things. And most importantly, because they'll sell anything, frankly, um, it, will the public go and buy it? And so it's this kind of weird kind of almost square or triangle of kind of like content, business, the public. And like, like cooking gets like HD. Cooking kind of gets like VR when you get all three firing and all. You know what I mean? It's not just about the spoken word or the book or the text or the program. It's like when, when you can talk to businesses or have an event or when um, you can move, you know, when you can do a program and they sell out a nutmeg. Because you told them like nutmeg in the sofrito of a bolognese just kicks it. You know, like when the country runs out of nutmeg, you're like, mm-hmm, this is, there's something really quite interesting here. And so that's, it took me about five years of TV making to develop, I guess, a few radars. It doesn't mean I get it right all the, to all right all the time, but I think it means that, well, the first thing we did is I started my own production company like two years in. So I got fired from the BBC, <laughs> which is quite cool. I accepted a, um, uh, what no one realizes, I was kind of skint at the time. I had no money and, and um, the money I was earning from publishing, I was spending on kind of running, trying to run, you know, having a flat that I couldn't really afford and, and having uh, like doubles and trebles of everything because of the filming. And um, like it was a chaotic time. Um, so I, I started working for a major supermarket over there, which was one of the, the better supermarkets. Um, and I really wanted to do it, not just for the cash, which was really helpful, but, um, but also because it gave me that ability to change what they put on the shelf. And then like when you can do a million recipe cards that's introducing a country to Thai green curry when they'd never even heard of it, you know, and you're getting people to buy kaffir lime leaves and, and sort of start making curry pastes that's what I wanted and, and but the BBC kind of were a public company they were having none of it um, and in their eyes I was too commercial which may or may not be true but that was my path and I chose it um, but I worked with Channel 4 who are slightly a more anarchic channel and a bit more gritty and um, 
kind of they're slightly unusual because they are commercial but they still take a bit of money from the BBC so they have to have diversity they have to talk about stories that no one wants to talk about um, so that allowed me to sort of start tinkering with like my first project was setting up 15 which is a restaurant I still have to this day which is a not-for-profit but um, basically it, it, for 15 years it ran as a because um, there was no apprenticeships in Britain um, I would take kids on our apprenticeship um, for a year and I would pay for it from the profits from the restaurant and um, most of these kids were either from prison from troubled backgrounds homeless or just a bit lost and um, that was the beginning of the kind of social conscience part because my dad his his not for any wrong reason but he he always believed you could never make a silk purse out of a sow's ear do you know what i mean aka if you brought if you were brought up in a, a rubbish family and you behaved in such a bad way like that's it that's the way you know so i i categorically disagreed with that and and we had a little bit of a rift for a while about that until i was able to put one of my students in his pub and he treated them like me when I was a kid and he loved it. And this kid blossomed and went from strength to strength and really benefited from dad's mentoring. And then he got it, he got it. Cause really 15 only embodies what my dad did for me, which was kind of clarity, a living um, exposure to sort of artisan and the love through great cheese makers and producers, but also like sternness, clarity, you know, rules. Um, and um, so really 15 was just dad anyway, but um, I think 15 was the beginning of then looking at other subjects because I, I started to realize that um, through training these kids that largely by default came from single families, from poor areas, um, families of crime. Um, I mean, I'm sort of generalizing massively, but I think it's fair to sort of push it that way. Um, so I started to realize that food was way beyond a kind of, you know, even a cheap meal out is very expensive to a lot of people in Britain and America. So then the idea that food goes beyond the restaurant was new for me at that point. And that's when I went on to school dinners and that was like a big change point. I'm kind of simple enough in my intelligence, which is simple. Um, I don't get too, I certainly then didn't get too granular um, about the nuance of righteousness science education like it was really simple to me like look we got a problem with with health of our kids in britain right we're the most unhealthy kids in europe okay this is a problem this um, this is going back 15 years by the way um so we have um you know 24,000 schools around the country um and we got like five and a half million kids in school and um they're getting breakfast and lunch provided by the state and um there's no standards so the state, in my mind, were very clearly almost responsible for 50% of all of a child's food for all of their childhood. Right, we got a problem. Because we had standards for dog food. If I wanted to make dog food in Britain and put it in a tin and put it on a shelf, then there is a whole load of laws and legislation. And if I don't adhere to that, then I could get put in jail. But for kids, British kids, nothing. So we've got this kind of weird British problem, like where they seem to love their dogs more than their kids. It's so British, it's hilarious. So what I, I just wanted to bring that um, to the forefront. So, um, and again, my dad kind of came back because like he kind of said, well, don't just talk about it, do something about it. So the only thing I could do was almost reverse time and go back. We have like a comprehensive school system, which was like, you know, Margaret Thatcher started them in sort of the 80s. And basically it was like about great schooling for any kid. And so I went right back to the very first one in Britain, which was in Kidbrook 
in Greenwich. So when we say Greenwich Mean Time is in the time, that's 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 little count that little part of London. Um, and I took over one school, which then became about thirty six schools, um, and uh, that was primary schools or elementary schools as you call them, and and high schools. And um, we told this story over a course of about eighteen months. It was pretty much full time, um, and it was the the, co- the context of it in, in its most simple is how strange humans are us humans all of us every one of us we hate change we hate change even if it's righteous so so i had to somehow work with an infrastructure of teachers of which over half didn't really want me there and i thought the grandparents would be into it and they weren't and the kids did not want their french fries taken away so um you know it was tough, but we basically transformed the food. We went from traying up reconstituted, highly processed, high salt, fat, sugar crap, and we went back to pretty simple old school food. People accused me of doing posh food. It wasn't posh. I mean, we're talking about 18 cents a portion for like a version of a chili con carne or spaghetti bolognese. You know, it's just real food that you would want to eat, but with good ingredients, right? So, um, this was the story, and this ended up in legislation, nutritional standards, and over the course of six years, um, at the time, it was a billion dollars of new money put into a school food system that we campaigned for, and most importantly, it was the first time I ever did a campaign, which was 376,000 signatures of analogue paper. I mean, it's probably not very sustainable at the time, you know, carbon, not very neutral, but we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Google, we didn't have any kind of digital way of, like, measuring likes or kind of it wasn't like today you know if I, if I did something na- now and we only got a million and a half it would be like average but I delivered that I delivered that um, campaign in a van and unloaded it at number 10 Downing Street and Mr Blair listened to the public the public were outraged and it was funny because all the people that I'd worked with for those 18 months that largely weren't convinced I think, like, institutional, like, I just came back from Delhi, and it's an incredible place to be, amazing food, culture, people. But, you know, there, there, there's such poverty there, and the water's not safe to drink, and there's lots of things that uh, Brits and, and Americans take for granted. And um, possibly some of our problems in our own cultures here, um, and at home for me, um, are taking things for granted. There's lots of people that have fought hard to get a vote and fought hard to have clean water that has plenty of checks and 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 i think you know um there's nothing there's nothing worse than the sport little brats that take stuff for granted so for me like what you have to do in that culture is institutional i mean the whole point of getting a free school lunch and 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 breakfast was to save people to nourish people to allow them to learn at an optimal amount even if you're the poorest kid in the block the 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 concept of education even though i had a bad one you know british elementary schools are really good all of them they're really good so if you get a breakfast and a lunch and you're from a really poor neighborhood actually you can there is hope. There is escape. And I'm, I don't want to over romanticize this, but if you take it across five million kids, fact. And so I think the idea that people hate change, you just have to get good at. And that is the staff, the head and the kids, because it all gets OK in the end. But you have to be relentless and you have to listen. And yes, there's better ways of doing it and making it feel inclusive. But even if you do a great job, change is tough. 
you know, and I remember when I kind of had a really tough time living in the most unhealthy town in America, which at the time was Huntington, West Virginia, and we did the ABC Food Revolution show um, out there, and I was there for like eight months, and, and, and Pastor Steve, who was a legendary pastor, and, and I love him to bits, and he was a real goodie, you know, he kind of, I was having a rough time, because they were kind of ganging up on me to get me out. And it wasn't just about me being British. It was about me being from the outside and the concept of change, even though I'd actually, I was kind of getting quite good at it by then. I'd done already done a few food systems. Um, so he said, people hate change until, you know, the pain of change. Not, people hate change until the pain of not changing is worse than change itself. And he was quoting another person's quote, but it's a brilliant quote. And it's as true as true can be. So I think, relentless being relentless um and and kind of working on deliciousness deliciousness can be on your i mean there's no better compliment than getting a kind of cliche sort of like i don't know what you call them down here but like the little rude boys we call them like with the trousers hanging down their ass kind of limping because they haven't got a limp and and like they're kind of down with the kids and like i get loads of kind of i'm getting loads of shit from them for like taking away their french so we took away their french fries five days a week why because that's all they'd have right so we just have them on fridays but we give them loads of other delicious things so of course i get loads of crap for like a month and a half but then like after two months, when you look at those kids coming in and they're killing the salad bar and they're getting wraps and they're eating kind of pasta bakes and, you know, they've got a diversity of food. And certainly from a nutritional point of view, I know that there's a whole blend of good stuff getting into their body instead of just a bowl of shite. Do you know what I mean? It's like, but there's nothing better than having the rude boys get down with the veg. <laughs> and it's really funny because it was only last week when I saw Snoop Dogg do a book. <laughs> and I'm going, there you go. <laughs> Even Snoop's had to, up to it these days. So, um, but, I, but what I do love is I think like, particularly in Britain and America, um, there is an energy that good food and the love of food is driven by wealth, right? And, and I kind of, I get all the rhetoric, but the truth is as a cook and as a chef that lives it and breathes it, is pretty much all of the genius meals of my life have come from communities that are poor, but they can cook. And trouble only really looks really bad, as in, you know, developing parts of the geography or cities or towns where they have the worst health in the world or the country, when poor people can't cook. When that happens, we have massive problems. And they're huge social problems that I've really tried to tell stories of and, and, and address um, some successfully and some not Did you fight for you and I? The last stuff you do kind of transcends country and culture but not American kids and, and I don't know what to make of it and I don't know what I'm saying in the sense of uh, it's, it's not it's not a poke or a jibe what was interesting is I had done that exact test in England Italy and Australia and the results were opposite so it, for me all I can really work out is the power of the brand the power of not just the brand of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a purveyor but the brand of a nugget you know what I mean like um, it was it's truly powerful it's a powerful thing and people many people think that you're you know born on earth to eat nuggets and burgers they, they don't you know they don't think there's other things so I think um that was a frightening scene, but um, that was also the same scene where we explained the existence of pink slime. I don't know if you remember that. And of course, that went viral as well. And um, uh, Americans didn't know that, you know, if it was less than 25% of a, of a ground beef product, 
across America, there could be pink slime in it. And it was. They reckon that there was pink slime in about 80% of all ground beef products in the whole of America. Can you imagine? So um, we broke that story on Food Revolution as well. And uh, companies, big companies that we know, started pulling out one by one by one. And, um, and the American public were outraged um, because they like, you know, they want to look on the back of a pack. And, it's, and even this, as a subject, is a really profound one. Like, clarity, labelling, don't lie. Do Americans deserve truth, yes or no? You know, this was only, this was only like eight or nine years ago where you could legally lie on a pack if it was less than 25%. So, you know, it's, uh, there's still a long way to go. The consistency of the Trump uh, outlook on this kind of thing is, is is a little bit worrying. I mean, I think, look, the, the point of the standards for American school kids is what does lowest common denominator look like? Once we've, you know, once we've achieved the standards that are legislation, we still have the problem with compliance, right? And, and, and you know, if there's 26,000 schools in the UK, I mean, there's probably 100-odd thousand in the, in the US. So... Um, you know, so to downgrade it is terrible. Um, and there was already um, the structure of, you know, even when I was in Huntington, West Virginia, you know, it, there was no cap on salt, fat or sugar. But there but you had to have 11 grains in a five day week, which if you kind of think about it, too much salt, too much fat, too much sugar and relentless like simple carbohydrates. What do you get? Well, the equal is very large kids. So, so, you know, the, these legislations and these structures that sit behind school lunches, they, they do have the capacity to have a prognosis at the end of it, for better or for worse. So the idea of the standards and all the hard work that has gone into school food across America, um, there's amazing patchwork quilt of, of independent, localised um, charities, NGOs, departments, um, superhero cooks... Men, women, cooks, non-cooks, doing incredible stuff. Um, so to, and the inertia is building and the normality of doing good is, you know, is gaining momentum. And, and this is called a culture of care. So, so to wish that upon American kids is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it expresses itself in, the, in an invisible way, sadly, in looking after the hardest to reach American kids um, that may have two generations of their own family who have diabetes, have lost uh, limbs and blindness. And that isn't a statistic that's kind of, oh, nuanced or cute. When I lived in East LA, you know, what I noticed was not a couple of kids, but whole schools of kids that had a little sheen of bulletproofness and youth about them taken away. Why? Why does that happen? It's because there is the worry of their own direct family nearest and dearest to them that is at jeopardy because of diet-related disease. So... Um, you know, for Mr. Trump to do this is callous, callous beyond. He, he, he is fucking with a system that he has no, everything he says, I'm an expert in that. He knows nothing about the school food program in the US of A, right? I know way more than him. And to mess with the next generations of American kids, the future of America, um, it is profoundly dark, profoundly. Why? Because if you give a child... Uh, optimal nutrition at a school food level um it's it's more than just food it's more than just energy it, it, it affects grades it, it it changes them if they learn to grow and if they if they eat 
um, it changes them. They, they undoubtedly, in my opinion, will be better people, better citizens. Um, and um, and I don't know what that sums up to exactly, but it is, if you times it by a few million, that is called community and all the things that you love. You know, I, do, I, just, I just think that the, the level of public health in children in America, like Britain, is at such a cliff edge and you guys are worse off than we are, that to go backwards is an unforgivable thing. So um, I hope he doesn't get his way. And I don't believe that nourishment of children in schools should be political at all. It shouldn't be political. It should never be political. It's a human right. That sort of thing is just upsets me a lot. Jamie Oliver's latest book is Five Ingredients, Quick and Easy Food, where he continues to spread his message of healthy eating through simple dishes. I've been publishing for 20 years. Um, I feel very emotionally attached to publishing, which, as someone that failed in English, like, I don't know, I've always felt that having the honour to publish one book that did very well in the States and across the UK... um, it, I feel so lucky to have had the opportunity to do it. So over the years, I've learnt every single department of publishing, every one. I've spent time in every department. Um, I've been in factories. I take pleasure in looking at the type of printing and, and the Pantone colours. And, and, and the reason I mention all of this is it's not just a book. I get really pissed off with with cooks and authors that think they can turn up to a front jacket cover and then never turn up again and some food stylist rattles out the recipes and they think it's going to do well it won't you know so over the last sort of 22 books that I've written in the last 20 years um each one has a heart and a soul and and I was actually publishing an Italian book where I'd spent uh, at the time a year working with nonnas across northwest, east and south of, of, of Italy, up mountains, you know, uh, on islands. I mean, mainly women in their 90s um, and getting just like the heart and soul from the last generation of old school cook. And it was a really I've never done this before in publishing, but it it needed another year. So on half of me, I had to give more time to this worthy cause and. Um, as a piece of publishing, you know, it was going to require twice as much time and effort and cash to go and do it. So it wasn't, you know, a commercially viable thing, but it just needed it. And at the same time, I was listening to my audience on social media and it weirdly, I'm not a fast learner. Like it, I started to realize when I started having deep engagement with a lot of people from a lot of countries that actually one of the reasons, like, what's the reasons for not cooking? What, like, you know, okay, I'm going to cook tonight. You know, one of the biggest reasons is how many ingredients? I'm not doing it. 90% switch off. You know, ingredients that I've never heard of, right? No, you know, another percentage switch off. So I started thinking, well, maybe if I can build like a prism to work and write recipes in, um, which took ego out of the way. So I'm not trying to create the best recipe in the world, but what I am trying to create is the quickest, easiest, tastiest recipe that requires like the least amount of mucking about and shopping um, because I'm a hardworking, busy person that just happens to love food. And so I, I created the kind of the quick and easy five ingredient prism. And I know it sounds a bit structured and I don't normally write like this, but um, I turned it around in four months. Um, not, I mean, the Italian book took me two years. Um, and um, 
I started like as a dyslexic kid, I started like looking at the page, you know, I started like appreciating white space as a gift and I didn't want to like, if it was freaking me out too much, too many words freaks me out. Right. So try and pick words that say a lot that say three things in one word and try not to say it's not about heart and soul history. I don't want to be nostalgic. This is not that book, you know, get to business. So to have five pictures of five ingredients and then come up with breakfast, brunches, lunches. Okay, let's talk about the contents. Break it down. Like, okay, let's let's make it quite utilitarian. Right, chicken, beef, pork, salad, pasta. Like, just think the way that people think on a Monday or Thursday when they're not trying to be glamorous about food. Like, ah, well, I've got a bit of chicken. What do I do with it? You know, and, and so I started basically with two of my friends that I work with all the time um, and, and putting yellow stickies around this wall. And, and I literally built, the book in a day and then I wrote for a month and a half and then I shot it for a month um, and the book was written and it's the fastest selling cookbook I've ever done so I mean and I don't say that in a sort of like uh, wanky showy offy way like like it's not I'm not patting myself on the back what I'm saying is um Part, it's a really interesting lesson, actually. Like, because um, my journey as an author and as a chef, you know, by my peers hasn't all. You know, they don't all like me. Some think that I, I do this, I do that. But I think really the only thing that matters is, is is we live in a time of like likes and shares and views, right? Oh yeah, I got a million views. I got a hundred thousand views. I got like X amount of likes. It don't really mean that much because you ain't bought nothing. When you buy a book, like we sold a million books in a year in the UK alone. Right, and, and the reason that's interesting is because that means that you're talking the language of the person now, like on a mass market level. Like, and, and for me, it was a massive learning, a massive learning curve about trying to, and I'm 20 years in, by the way. So in, in, like that's publishing years. So in dog years, I'm like 100 years old, right? So to be 20 years in and learning profound lessons about not being egotistical about cooking. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was it was epic and um and then kind of fast forward a year and i'm i'm here in america wondering if the americans are going to like it and i and i don't know because it might not be the right time here but i have a kind of feeling that it might be i think like on an emotional level because it was skin on skin like 15 really changed me like the the capacity to invest 15 years into sort of mentoring and changing you know what will be across three fifteens. We still have two working. Um, Four hundred and eighty students graduated. Some of which moved, emigrated to America. You know, I had I had one uh, with a Michelin star over here. I haven't got a Michelin star, so that kind of that that's probably that's kind of changed me in, a, in an indescribable way. Um, the, the concept of mentoring, um, and then what are you a mentor or mentoree? That's the interesting one, because I've now got my students showing me what, how to do it. Um, but then I think, like, school dinners was profound. You know, getting nigh on a billion dollars at the time, it translated as, of new money, new money. Not, not bounced money, but new money put into a system that hadn't been invested in for 40 years. That's probably my proudest sort of, like, s- civic moment, really. But I think, to be honest, I think, I think it's just the beginning, really. I think now I've seen it change over the years, like my use. And that's, that's the weird thing now. It's like, 
Um, it, it's highly pretentious and slightly wanky, but like I have to even look at myself in the third person. I know that's really sounds awful to say it, but like I, if you ask me what I should do, that's not always what I do because I think the platform with the platforms that I have the access that I have the data that I have and the permission I have to tell a story or drive a campaign or make a difference or scare the crap out of a politician which I'm quite good at you know um you know um it's not what should I do it's what should we do it is different it is different and it sounds pretentious but I I swear to you it's not meant with an ounce of pretension at all so you know like we got a sugary drinks tax in the UK you know that was that was a one-hour documentary and an hour and, and a year and a half of my work. And even my own work colleagues thought I was mad, right? What, 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 what do you mean? You want us to devote a year and a half to a tax, but like taking the public on a journey where it's a tax for good, where we ring fence that money raised, which looks like it's going to be half a billion dollars this year, and only spending it in school sports and school breakfast clubs. You know, that's a cool thing. That's a tax for good. And, and actually that was, that um, polled at like 68% approval, which for a tax conversation is actually unheard of in Britain. So I think like, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do is not necessarily easy. Like, um, but yeah, it's, I told you I wouldn't give you a simple answer. Being Jamie Oliver is quite complicated. It's not. It's not the easy. I do struggle with it. I'm not going to lie. Um, uh, there's a lot of expectation back home, and uh, and a lot of friction, should I say? Um, and the concept of what is progress and what does it look like and what is appropriate and what isn't, and where do we go next? Um, as I get older, as a father of five, is a tough one. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a journey. I'm happy to do it. That's our show. Thanks for listening. For more food revolutionary stories told in their own words, check out HRN's series Evolutionaries wherever you listen to podcasts. Next week, our team is headed to Charleston Wine and Food Festival, and we can't wait to report back on our conversations with Chef Manit Chohan, entrepreneur Glenn Roberts, and the festival's director, Jillian Zettler, among many others. Meat and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production this week by Dylan Hoyer. Our lead audio engineer is Matt Patterson. The Jamie Oliver episode of Evolutionaries was engineered by Amanda Wang. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food podcast network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 